our guest today is Jim Stump. Jim is the vice president at BioLogos. He oversees the editorial team, participates in strategic planning, and hosts the podcast, The Language of God, which is excellent, I might add. Jim also writes and speaks on behalf of BioLogos. He has a PhD in philosophy and was the former professor and academic administrator in the philosophy department um, at a college. His books include Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, Science and Christianity, an Introduction to the Issues, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution, The Blackwell Companion to Science and Christianity, and a most recent book, um, Original Sin and the Fall, Five Views, and his previous book, Old Earth Creation or Evolutionary Creation. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own journey? Uh, you used to be a professor, an academic advisor. Um, just you know, talk a little bit about your own journey here and how you ended up now as the vice president of BioLogos. Yeah, so that's a fairly long story. I'll try to uh, give you the Cliff's Notes versions. But I started out uh, in and my undergrad uh, degree doing math and science education, and thought I was going to perhaps go and be a high school math teacher and a cross country coach or something like that. My wife and I, who my wife also uh, has an education degree, right after I graduated, we decided to go and explore the world a little, and took a position, a two year position with a mission organization to teach at a mission school in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And so I went and, and taught there. Sierra Leone blew up into civil war, and we ended up getting evacuated out right at the end of a, a year of that. And But it, during that time there, I started reading a lot more seriously than I ever had in my math and science courses. And thought, you know, I think I might want to do philosophy. And I wasn't even entirely sure what that was, but came back and went to graduate school in philosophy, uh, did a master's degree and then a PhD. And in both of those, I kind of emphasized philosophy of science because that was something I, I knew about. And so did the philosophy of science. Um, had always been interested, grew up in a Christian home and was always uh, a faithful Christian. And so I was interested in how that impinged on this as well. And even when I was doing my PhD, I kind of wanted to do a dissertation on science and religion, but was told that probably wasn't a good idea. So instead did a historical uh, analysis of how science and philosophy had interacted throughout the scientific revolution. Thought I was going to go on and teach at a big research university somewhere, but my undergrad institution, this little Christian college in Indiana, said, hey, we want to start a philosophy program. Would you come back here and teach here? And a little bit reluctantly, because I wasn't sure what I was going to be getting in for there, I did, but to my great surprise, found a very nice community there now. And we had a, we started up a philosophy program, had four of us who were uh, had PhDs in philosophy and really enjoyed that. We had a, a very nice philosophy community, took the life of the mind seriously, took our faith seriously, and really uh, were interested in, in teaching the next generation. I was tricked into being an administrator for a little while in in that time. And then after about five years of that, when I got out and was back in the classroom, I started engaging more seriously again with the scholarship that I wanted to do in science and religion. Um, went to some of these Templeton seminars and uh, got involved a bit 
more seriously there. And then it was about this same time that BioLogos was moving its offices from San Diego, where they used to be, to Grand Rapids. Our new president, Deb Harzma, uh, she and her husband both taught at Calvin College in Grand Rapids. And so when they chose her to be president, she said, I will on the condition that I can move the offices to Grand Rapids. And not surprisingly, only a couple of the other staff in San Diego said, yeah, we'll move to Grand Rapids. So she was looking for a substantial number of new staff people. And I responded to one of those ads saying, I'm not sure that I'm ready to leave my full-time faculty position, but I'm really interested in this. And is there some way we might uh, strike a deal here that I can be involved? And half of my time was teaching and half of my time was working for biologos and everybody was everybody was fine with that the administration was happy in fact that i was involved in this level but then some of the wider constituency of the college decided it was not a good thing for one of their faculty members to have anything to do with biologos and a long series of meetings took place between faculty and board members and pastors and to cut this long and agonizing story short They ended up changing the documents that faculty had to sign, and one of those changes prohibited me from working for BioLogos. And the thought was that I would probably just give up that hobby and go back to teaching philosophy and quit talking about science and evolution. But instead, I left and went with BioLogos full-time, and that caused uh, quite a little stir in our little community there. And that was about five years ago. So for the last five years, now this is the sixth year, uh, I've been full-time with BioLogos. Jim, along those lines, uh, a few weeks ago we had uh, Dr. John Walton on, and uh, he too almost lost his job (laughs) over a concern about inerrancy. So our question to him was uh, not, do you believe in inerrancy, Um, but do you believe that it, unfortunately, by some corners of the family has been weaponized to silence other views or to um, manipulate in ways uh, for those of you who are in an academic field or even in the pulpit in some areas. Weaponized is the right word there. Um, There's a tradition of inerrancy. It's fairly recent, the way it's been articulated since the Chicago uh, statement came out in the late 70s. For a long time, I was a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society and was even on the on the executive committee of the Philosophical Society. And there's a statement you sign for that that includes the word inerrant. And I did sign that in good faith for a number of years. But along those lines of what you're saying, how that is sometimes weaponized, there was a move, a movement uh, by some people saying, this is exactly what inerrancy means. And if you mean anything different than this, you can't be a part of us. And when that happened, I said, that's enough. And I actually, at one of the, at one of the annual meetings for the, for the Evangelical Philosophical Society, I gave my paper on why I am no longer holding, why I'm no longer signing the statement. And I don't think it was that my own beliefs changed in that. And among those who subscribe to inerrancy, there is quite a range of uh, positions of what they mean. And 
the sort of cynical way to look at it is to say among the academic circles, there's a kind of a wink and a nod to say, yeah, we know there are all these issues. Uh, but if we mean by inerrancy this, then we can continue to sign this at our institutions and or pastors within churches where those are fighting words and have become a kind of shibboleth that if you don't say that word, you can't be part of us. When there's a much richer and more sophisticated conversation that goes on about that. So there's another one of these four views books on inerrancy. And for instance, someone like Kevin Van Hooser at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School who subscribes to it, but writes in a a very sort of sophisticated and subtle and nuanced way of understanding that it's more difficult than just pointing to a chapter and verse and saying, see, that's what the Bible says. So because I'm an inerrantist, that must be what everybody believes. So it gets more difficult than that. At BioLogos, we have not taken a specific stand on inerrancy, and that's cost us some followers by people who have said, if you don't sign on to that. I'm not going to listen to whatever you have to say. But we don't because we recognize that for many genuine Christians who take the Bible seriously, that language just isn't helpful because of the kind of gym gymnastics you have to do sometimes to explain away problem passages or whatever. So Biologos actually put out um, what we call one of our common questions, which is one of the areas of the website where we address questions like, like this, and wrote saying that we think our position is consistent with inerrancy, but it doesn't demand inerrancy. So whether you accept inerrancy or not, you can come and be part of us and accept the, the science of, of evolution and take the Bible seriously and interpret it faithfully. So we have tried for to not make it a, you know, a shibboleth or a stumbling block for people. At one of your conferences a few years back, and you probably remember this, you had some staff members on stage talking about personal testimony and how they've been treated once family members and church members found out that they were working in a scientific field or they, they accepted evolution and what was the response to them. And so by late in high school, when I was rethinking what I'd grown up with, with young earth creationism and kind of thinking through my faith, um, it got into trickier situations of where that curiosity leads me. And I think repeatedly of a friend of mine who went to the same church, um, he was the brother-in-law of a pastor. He and I were kind of the two people in church who absolutely loved science. And while my path took me through college, seminary, and now working at BioLogos, this friend of mine, is now an atheist. And a few years ago, I sent him a message and just kind of asked him about, you know, we had such kind of similar starting points and just wondering how we ended up in such a different ending point. And it was the same sort of thing, curiosity, that he mentioned, that um, he felt that in churches, sometimes he remembers even from a young age, asking some kind of skeptical question about something he was being told and being really discouraged from doing that. And he saw the exact opposite in the scientific world. Being curious, asking questions is rewarded. From his experience, Christianity discouraged curiosity and question asking, whereas you can't do science without curiosity and question asking. So this same kind of curiosity that can fuel both communities and should fuel both communities was something that ended up being kind of a wedge um, between the two. In science, asking questions 
is um, a good thing. <laughs> and it's welcome and it's invited and this is how you discover truth. Uh, but that wasn't the case in, in church and in our faith. So my question to you about what you've just shared with us about, about what you went through um, really in making the decisions between Biologos and retaining your professorship is this. You work with a lot of people who, and know a lot of people who are in the science, scientific fields and who might not have share our faith. And when they see the church acting this way, uh, and they see it doesn't it reaffirm their belief that Christianity is just superstition when fellow Christians make you sign on a dotted line to even have a job or something like that doesn't it seem to be anti-intellectual in a way in a way um, I I think uh, one of the ways of describing that, and there may be several ways of describing that, but one of the ways of describing that is that there is an element of systems of faith that is dogmatic. I mean, that is sometimes used as a, as a dirty word. And among scientists, that might sound like a dirty word <laughs> to say, you're just being dogmatic about it. But there's a place for dogma, right? I think the real question is, what are the lines between the absolute essentials of what we hold to and what we believe versus the periphery? Or even there might be several layers of what is it that's going to cause us to split into different denominations versus what is it that within one church people can reasonably disagree about? So clearly there is some dogma without which it strains the definitions to say I'm a Christian. If I don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it strains the definitions to say that I'm really part of that tradition that holds to uh, to following Christ in that way. But do I have to hold to a historical Adam? Do I have to hold to penal substitutionary atonement? Do I have to hold to certain specific roles for women and not for men? Do I, you know, you get into lots of the modes of baptism. There are lots of things that Christians have disagreed on over the ages. And we at Biologos have tried to say evolution doesn't need to be one of those, you know, stumbling blocks. So it's not even our primary goal to get everybody to accept our position. It's been our primary goal to get people to recognize that it is a legitimate and faithful position within Christianity, that there are Christians who can hold to the sciences and do so coherently and can do so faithfully rather than saying, oh, that's a line in the sand. And once you're past that, you know, you can't you can't be one of us anymore. Well, I want to I want to get Christine in on this, but now you've uh, um, you've allowed me to put on my skeptics hat and pretend um, to be an atheist and push back on you on that point. The Please. resurrection. Um, isn't this a question of confirmation bias versus um, falsification theory? In other words, you saw it in the debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham, and they were asked the question, is there any evidence that can get you to change your mind? And, um, and, and Ken Ham basically said, no, I'm a Christian. But on the resurrection, the Apostle Paul himself said, if Christ is not risen, we are of all men most miserable. So uh, that would seem that the, the Apostle Paul made room for falsification theory. 
In other words, if evidence was presented to him that Christ didn't rise, then as an honest man, he'd have to follow that evidence, whereas it wasn't an a priori even with the Apostle Paul. So, so my question to you is this. Uh, if, if a skeptic looks at Christianity and sees that it, it's more confirmation bias than falsification theory, in other words, how would you answer that question if it's put for, forward to you? Is there any evidence that could be presented to you that would make you change your mind? Or are you saying you are a priori um, convinced X? So I think it's more more uh, difficult and complex than that binary. So yes, I want to say I'm following the evidence. But the difficulty is, is that evidence itself doesn't just stand on its own. It's embedded within a much bigger system. And those systems always, has, always have ways to kind of counterbalance and work with whatever's there to save the opinion. This is the only way young earth creationism has survived, is by being able to take little teeny shreds of evidence and incorporate them into much bigger systems where they hold together with other kinds of facts. So when I say, yes, I'm going to follow the evidence, and yes, I think something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those absolutes for the for the Christian faith, but you're saying, but if somebody presented evidence against that, would you give it up? Well, depends what the evidence is. If, it sh if Richard Dawkins wrote a new book and said, I have shown that Jesus Christ never rose from the dead, am I going to go, oh no, I guess my faith is done. No, I'm going to say no, I don't believe him. I don't think he's assessing things correctly. If it runs on a story on the front page of the New York Times, am I going to say, well, I guess I have to give up my faith now. I'm going to say, no, I want to dig into this a little deeper and see where they're getting this. And are they making questionable assumptions? Are they drawing conclusions that don't stand? So that's why I say it's more complex than this. It's So it's not just a matter of somebody one day discovering bones in a tomb and saying, oh, look, there's Jesus's body and all of Christianity goes away. That's not how it would work because all, all of those findings, all of those evidences are much more complex and involved with lots of other assumptions, lots of other methodologies of how we go about doing this. And if scientists are going to uh, uh, be reflective enough to look at this, they'll admit the same thing about their own work. So it's embedded in bigger systems, in histories and traditions of the ways of interpreting things. And then you might legitimately ask, well, how do we know anything is really true? And I, my answer there is over a long stretch of time, the truth tends to win out, right? And so we continually subject these things to critical evaluation and to review. And we, are, do, we do our best to kind of muddle through and say, yep, we used to think this, but now we think this. And does this change some other things that we hold on to? So in both theology as well as in sciences, there are those kind of dynamics at play where it's not just a straightforward, here's the piece of evidence that causes me to throw everything else out. One piece of evidence is embedded in a much bigger conceptual system, and it's that whole conceptual system that I'm trying to justify or to show that it's reliable and coherent and all of that. So sorry if I'm uh, dodging the question a little bit, but uh, for, I've studied epistemology for too many years to think that it's just that straightforward of an issue. <laughs> 
if it was all so, about the evidence, there'd be no room for faith, too. And I think that's where a lot of young apologists get it wrong. They try and prove God and not leave, and they end up not leaving room for faith to try and force feed their certainty. Christine, bring us back to the book. <laughs> all right, so I just finished reading this book, which is called Original Sin in the Fall, Five Views. And you were like the oh, editor, sorry. put this together, and it's an set of series of essays um, with five different views and then responses to those views. So um, who's the target audience of this book? Well, it's, um, it's not specifically a science and religion text. There's not a lot of science in it. It's, mo it's more theology. And so I think anybody who is interested in theology, it uh, could work for. It's fairly academic, but not overly technical, I hope. So people who are interested in how uh, original sin in the fall as traditional parts of a theological system fit into a bigger whole and what we know now and how that ought to be reflected. I think that, it, that the book is for people in those categories. So it may be used as a textbook in uh, upper level undergraduate courses or seminaries or something like that. But I hope a lot of people like yourself also pick it up and find some benefit from it. Which brings us up, Jim, this was a five-year process for you. I understand you went through a, a couple of different <laughs> editors and so forth, which is, that, that's a long time to put something together like this. Um, you, you put together kind of a continuum uh, of voices, as you, as you did with your previous book. Was it, was it hard for you and your um, co-author to, to come up with these names? Um, how, how did you go about coming up with those who contributed to the work? It's not hard to come up with names. It's sometimes more difficult to get those names to agree to what you want them to do. But in this case, that wasn't really that difficult either, because when you start a project like this, so we, yeah, my co-editor, Chad Meister, who is one of my very good friends, and he is a philosophy professor at the same college that I taught at for a number of years. Um, and we started this project when I was still there, when I was still at that college. And so we would sit around and talk about these kind of questions a lot, right? So we're, you know, inheritors of a kind of traditional story of where if God created the world good, why is there anything bad in it? And the traditional story is that there were these two people who uh, ate a piece of fruit at the prompting of a snake. And after they did that, everything bad came into the world, right? That's the way I kind of grew up hearing the story and understanding and thinking it made sense. Well, it turns out that story has um, some problems on its own, but then when you bring in um, contemporary science, even more so that it's difficult to square with the history of the development of our species, which happened hundreds of thousands of years ago and didn't involve just two people and so on. So, we would talk about these things a lot and trying to, to understand how our faith fits and coincides with this natural history that scientists are increasingly confident in, in what we have discovered. So in talking about that, you start by looking at this range of views that is out there. What do other people say about it? So for a, a multi-views book like this, you say, 
you start with kind of what are the endpoints of that continuum? How far are we going to go one direction? How far are we going to go the other direction? And then you look at some of the intermediate points, and then you want to find some diversity so they're not all people that look like you or come from the exact same kinds of institutions because you want to see some of the breadth of the Christian tradition and how this works. So we uh, put together a sort of list of here are the important positions, who are some of the people that we know, who, and frankly, there's also an element of who are some of the people we like. <laughs> when you're involved in a project this long, it's much, much easier and more enjoyable to work with uh, people that you know and you like and you have fun with and that you respect. So you start putting together some of those kind of things and you send out a few emails and see who might be interested. If I if I remember right, because again, this is a little, quite a while ago, if I remember right, there was only one person we asked who turned us down. And even that person we asked and he didn't get back to us right away. And it was like a month later that we finally said, well, we'll move on and ask somebody else. And he ended up coming back and saying, oh, yeah, this sounds great. I'd love to do this. And I said, well, sorry, we uh, that ship already sailed. So the people that we asked were genuinely interested in the project, too, and used it themselves to try to work out, okay, what exactly do I think about this? And how am I going to be able to respond to some others who have uh, slightly different views on things? So picking the people went pretty quickly and getting the publisher to agree to that uh, was a fairly smooth process. But then when you have five different contributors who are all full-time working and have other projects and other book contracts and all of that, it just becomes a, a long process where you have something like this, where it's not just write your piece, but you need to write your piece. And then other people have to respond to that piece. And um, so coordinating all of those points along the way, and there were several people that were ill during this time. And so it just dragged out for a, for a much longer time than we were anticipating. All right, well, let's talk about the views. So the first one in the book is Augustinian Reformed View. Um, tell us a little bit about this view. What are like a summary and then maybe like the strengths and weaknesses of the view. Yeah, so Hans Madaway May is the uh, guy who wrote about this one. And he was very adamant that he wanted this to be called an Augustinian Reformed view. So he was drawing on the work of Augustine as well as the Reformed tradition in general. And this is the one that comes closest to that traditional picture that I shared just a little bit ago. Uh, Matawame is not ignorant of the science, but he just thinks that the Bible clearly teaches that humans are recent creations and distinct from the rest of the created order. So he argues that there were Adam and Eve were in a garden with a snake and they ate a piece of fruit and that's how death and all the bad things entered the world. So, of course, in terms of strengths and weaknesses, that fits with how a lot of people interpret their Bibles. But, of course, it stands in considerable tension with uh, the picture of the world given to us by science. And his re reaction to that is that science gets things wrong sometimes. And because I think the Bible so clearly teaches this one thing, I have to uh, believe that science is getting something wrong. And down the road, we'll discover that, you know, they were wrong and that the theologians were right all the way along. So that's the kind of traditional view. All right. You want me to just keep clicking um, then, through yeah. these, or you want to start sure, and talk about is, each one a little bit? Yeah, no, the next one is the moderate reformed. Moderate reformed. So Oliver Crisp, uh, 
is um, a theologian. He's now at uh, Andrews University, St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, was at Fuller Seminary for a number of time. He too comes from the Reformed tradition and wants to be clear that he thinks uh, what he is uh, defending here is consistent with the Reformed tradition broadly conceived, but that it's moderated a little bit from that traditional Augustinian view. Sometimes there's a caricature that people use when they get talking about the doctrine of the fall and original sin, that it's really Luther's reading of Calvin's read or Calvin's reading of Luther's reading of Augustine's reading of St. Paul's reading of Genesis chapter three, right? That there's this long tradition that, that's packed into that. Um, but there are lots of branching offshoots on all of this. And uh, Oliver claims that his is broadly within that reformed tradition. But one of the main moves he's doing, one of the main moves he's making is separating what often you find in the reformed tradition of original sin from original guilt. So he affirms original sin that is inherited and passed along. But he wants to say the, the, the sort of mainstream uh, reformed position has always packaged original guilt with that, saying that we ourselves are guilty for what Adam and Eve did back then. And he wants to say, no, I don't think that follows. And it's very difficult to square with lots of other intuitions we have. The choices of our ancestors certainly constrain us in various ways, but we're not morally responsible for what they have done. We're morally responsible for what we have done. We're accountable for our own sins, not for the sins of other people. And another thing he does is to try to make this as minimalist a doctrine as possible. So in the, the kind of mere Christianity sense the, that C.S. Lewis did. And so what he's doing is trying to say, I'm not going to take a stand on things like historical Adam and Eve. Was there a really uh, a garden where all of these things happened? Instead, he thinks I can talk about this theologically in ways that are consistent with whether there was or whether there wasn't. So I'm not going to take a stand on that. I'm just going to say, here's the theology of it, and we'll let the scientists duke it out on, on the science. So his uh, moderate reformed doctrine is to say, I mean, he's taking a good chunk of what has, has been there in the reformed tradition about original sin, but saying, we th I think I can separate out and still remain committed to the reformed tradition as a minority report of sorts, that original guilt is not a part of that package, and that we don't have to uh, make this dependent on, on the natural history of our species, however that turns out to be. The next one is what, the Wesleyan view? So the Wesleyan view, Joel Green is a New Testament scholar and theologian at Fuller Seminary, and he's in the Wesleyan, so stemming from John Wesley, the Wesleyan tradition, which takes scripture very seriously, but he thinks the spirit of Wesley demands that we rethink some ways that we have interpreted scripture when science clearly shows otherwise. Uh, John Wesley himself showed signs of this. Probably Wesley himself would have held to a fairly traditional doctrine of original sin, um, but he didn't know the science that we know now, and he showed lots of signs of taking science seriously and seeing that theology as our attempts to make sense of the, the data from scripture and, and of experience and tradition, um, 
theology has to be able to reflect uh, our own times. And so we let scripture shape and constrain us in various ways, but that uh, we need to rethink these doctrines when, when times are appropriate. And so Green is saying those times are appropriate right now. So Wesley himself understood sin not so much in the legal terms that the Reformed traditions often talk about, but more along the lines of sin is a disease that needs to be healed by the work of Christ, rather than, you know, this, this strictly sort of legal transaction of some sort. And that changes then the way we think about what would original sin be and the way it is inherited and the way it spreads like a disease rather than we are somehow guilty for it. There were circumstances created that uh, led to society being in a certain way, that we are in a fallen world and that we all sin. Um, but maybe there are ways of understanding Christ as healing that, as opposed to just being the, the judge. So that's the Wesleyan view. The next one was the Eastern Orthodox. So Andrew Luth is a British uh, theologian. And as you mentioned, Christine, already, Eastern Orthodoxy uh, runs along a little bit different trajectory than those of us in the West did. And original sin itself has not really been a part of that. Uh, Eastern Orthodox. Original sin, as I just said, is often thought of Augustine's interpretation of Paul, and Augustine was in the Latin West. Well, all the while, there's a robust theology in the East, which generally acknowledges a fall of humanity, but the response to that is more along the lines of what they called theosis, which is deification. So there's a passage in Second Peter where we are to come to participate in the divine itself. And Eastern Orthodox believes that our coming to participate in the divine is what God brings about. Um, and so uh, St. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, speaks of the incarnation in terms of of God became human so that humans could become God. And that rings funny to our ears in the West. But it's not that we're going to become part of the Trinity or something. It's those words from Peter that we're to come to participate in the divine nature. We're to become the bride of Christ. We are to become something more rather than just there was some legal transaction that we were viewed as guilty and now we're not viewed as guilty. That's, you know, reduces the Western understanding of, of redemption to a kind of caricature. But in the East, that caricature is we are to become divine. That's what God has called us to do, to become rulers with God in the new, the new creation. So this Eastern Orthodox view, there's a much stronger emphasis on the healing of all of creation. God so loved the cosmos, not God so loved human beings that he gave his only begotten son. The, the Greek of John 3.16 is God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. And so uh, that Eastern view uh, is a much more holistic understanding of the response to human sin rather than just this one thing that happened one time and then made all of us guilty, right? So it's another way of, of getting past just the guilty part of that. And finally, in this spectrum, uh, we get to the other end, which we called the reconceived view. So Tatha Wiley is a, is a theologian. She is Catholic herself in a little more liberal strain of Catholicism, though. And she would want to make the argument that, as I was saying earlier, that theology is a human 
explanation. It's a human construct. Theology itself is not handed from heaven fully formed. Instead, we do our best to make sense of things, and that's a very culturally specific activity. So when our culture changes, we need to be able to change our theological explanations. So she makes the case that the Bible itself shows this kind of change and adaptation, even if it's even in its understanding of sin over the centuries and millennia that, that scripture was written. We see sin described sometimes as a kind of burden that is being born, and other times as a stain, and in other times it's a debt that needs to be paid. So we see these very culturally specific understandings of what sin itself is, and that within scripture then there is no fully developed concept of original sin. And so that's what we are doing to try to understand it. So she thinks today we are best to understand sin along the lines of what the 20th century Catholic theologian Bernard Lonergan did, where sin is the failure to love properly. And so this sinful condition or, uh, you know, the fallen state of the world is a kind of inauthentic living. And so God remedies this through Christ in, co in cooperation with our religious practices. And these are not just individual decisions that are made or changes within just me, but there's a collective development of humankind as we more and more embody the ethic of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. So this one sounds, you know, uh, uh, again, quite a bit different to those of us who grew up in evangelical traditions and heard the way those words were used then, but it's her attempt to uh, enculturate it within uh, a sort of modern scientific viewpoint. So that's the quick uh, overview of all of those positions. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we grow up with what we know or we're in a church and we read and study and and what we think, we believe everybody else thinks that way too. Um, mm -hmm. It's easy to just have, you know, your own bias or your own, well, this this is how it looks to me and everybody else probably sees it the same. Um, so it's really interesting to hear these different perspectives, especially some of the ones that um, are farther different, more different than um, the, the tradition where I grew up. So um, I think it's really helpful as we're growing and, and trying to understand scripture to kind of take a step back from, you know, our own baggage, if you will, and see what other people are saying and evaluate them. And, uh, you know, maybe you change, maybe you don't, but at least to be aware of more views. So that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, so what advice would you give to someone struggling to understand Genesis and original sin and the fall and, and all these kind of issues? How, how do you recommend people take steps to integrate all these things? And, and uh, it's a huge undertaking. What's, what's kind of a good process that you recommend? Yeah, I would uh, recommend that you go slowly and don't think that uh, this all changes overnight in, in, in some regard. And you mentioned uh, you had John Walton on recently. I recommend for people that are that are new to this, uh, starting with some of his work. Not all Old Testament scholars accept all the details of what he has done, but I think it's a fantastic place to start to see how the ancient Near Eastern mindset in which Genesis was written is very different than ours today, and we have to take account of that. So he gives great examples of of under of of helping you to 
to switch from seeing the Bible as just words on a page that might have been written yesterday by my neighbor in America to, no, this was several thousand years ago in a culture very different from our own. And they use words that we can translate like sky, but they didn't think the same thing that we think when we see it. When we say earth, we think of a round ball floating in space. That's not what they thought. And he gives a, a lot of examples like that of how when we peel back the layers of our own sort of cultural assumptions, we can see the text much closer to, to what it was originally intended to be. And then it lets us say, okay, so how do we evaluate this? What is it that God is communicating to that culture in their language and, the, and in their concepts? And it turns out that it doesn't seem like God was trying to tell them, hey, you guys, a few thousand years from now, here's what scientists are going to discover. That's not the kind of thing that we would expect to find in Scripture. So uh, seeing that the human authors of Scripture, as opposed to the author, the human authors of scripture probably believe some different things than we do about the history of the earth and species on the planet and all of that, but that there are ways of understanding the message that comes through that is not limited to having those kinds of scientific understandings. So talking to lots of people, reading widely, being as involved as you can, um, all of those things help to, to see the different perspectives and approaching it all with some semblance of goodwill and humility of saying, I'm not the only one who has ever done this and I can maybe learn from what other people have done, so. Jim, um, and this might seem to be a defense of Andrew Valth a little bit. Um, you wrote an article recently that you, in which you uh, made the conjecture that uh, people who follow BioLogos might lean a little more towards Oliver Crisp or Joel Green, and I'll let you defend that. I told Christine before the, uh, the show, before you came on, that I, in reading the views, I felt comfortable with kind of the last three views, but I didn't really fit like any one view fit my hand like a glove, but there were elements of the last three that resonated with where I'm at on my faith journey right now. But I wanna ask you this. Um, when, so one, of, one of the writers made the comment that you don't find this discussion amongst uh, any of the Jewish uh, writers of ancient times in their, in their commentaries, and you, you don't find them talking about original sin when dealing with their own scriptures. And, and the absence of Adam and Eve in the rest of the Jewish scriptures, other than just making a, you know, a grand entrance in scene one, has something to say. So when you, when you look at, say, the Eastern Orthodox view, which, as you said, kind of stayed out of the fight between Catholics <laughs> and Protestants, and then you consider the silence of, of most of the Jewish world, and just we're starting really with Augustine's take on Romans 5 and maybe 1 Corinthians 15. Is, is there an argument to be made there from the silence of the Jewish world and the fact that the Eastern Orthodox world just never even broke into the discussion until recently? There is certainly an argument to be made. The question is whether the uh, argument is compelling and convincing or not. But I, as I said earlier, I think a lot of our Western Protestant 
understanding of original sin in the fall comes mediated through Calvin, through Luther, through Aquinas a little bit, but also Augustine, Augustine's reading of Paul's reading of Genesis. So the Jewish uh, community that you're arguing for there, it is pretty tough to get original sin in the fall out of Genesis itself without Paul's interpretation of Genesis and his uh, co-opting Adam and Eve to stand as the representatives for all of us in that sense. So in the Jewish worldview, you read the story in Genesis 3 and it's the in three and four, and it's the story of innocence being lost. Um, the text itself says Adam and Eve didn't even know good and evil yet, right? They didn't know the difference between good and evil. So how are they supposed to be blamed for doing this awful thing that set all of the rest of creation down this down this one path? So the Eastern Orthodox position then has has had more in. Uh, more in line with that than it has the Augustine's reading of Paul. Now, you can make an argument on the other side to say within the Christian tradition, Paul is the definitive interpreter of Genesis. So we have to take his view of Genesis more seriously. Now, you could also argue, though, that what Paul is doing is modeling for us the responsible treatment of scripture, where he took the scriptures of his day and interpreted them in light of what was going on in his world. Paul wasn't the first one to talk about Adam and Eve. There are a bunch of stories about Adam and Eve outside of, of scripture in the, you know, those couple of centuries around the time of Christ when Paul was writing and he was clearly aware of it. So somebody like um, Scott McKnight and Dennis Venema uh, wrote their book, Adam and the Genome. That's Scott McKnight's claim. He says, yeah, Paul was using this, but so was everybody else using Adam to tell a story. So it's not just that Paul's story has to be taken as the definitive one, as much as it is what Paul was doing should be the model for us to say, how can we tell the gospel story in our own context? And for him, it was telling it in the, in the context of Adam and Eve. For us, it might be telling it in the context of evolution. So um, there can be arguments back and forth there. And like I said earlier, it's, it's always going to be a little more complicated than just saying, here's the one point that seals the deal and, and uh, gets everybody to believe the same way, because that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. So, um, so you've done other multiple view books you've done this uh old old earth or evolutionary creation book and then you did a four views book that has these two views plus a young earth creation and an intelligent design book um let's talk a little bit about these these views um what are the, the four views or the two views and um how did these books develop and how have they been received sure yeah, so I've been involved in a few of these, which must mean I like them. They're fun. I like in, engaging with, with other people. So the first one you showed there was the, the one we did with the Reasons to Believe group. And that one, I think, was the most fun out of all of these because it was really the fruit of a much longer conversation that we had had with them. So we have been, um, by Logos, I mean, when I say we, we've been meeting with uh, people from Reasons to Believe, Hugh Ross and, and his team for a number of years. And we did so behind closed doors outside of the public eye. We'd get together and try to talk about 
uh, the things we believed together uh, in common and where our differences were. But we always did that in the context of we were also going to pray together and we sang together and we'd eat together. And these people became our friends. And what you find in that context is that it's a lot harder to be snippy and snarky at somebody on the internet when it's somebody that you've prayed with and that you've eaten with and that you've heard their testimony and they've heard your testimony and you've become friends with them. And so at the end of several years of meeting, uh, we said, we should try to capture this and put this in a book. And so the way that one was set up, uh, we, we actually had several professors from Southern Baptist seminaries who functioned as the, the kind of host or the moderator because we ended up meeting at many of these seminaries where the places where meetings took place. And so they'd pose a question and then somebody from each side would answer and then they'd pose a follow-up and somebody from each side would answer that. So in that one, we went through a number of the topics. And again, some of those we uh, have substantial agreement on, the age of the earth, for example. And on some of those we disagree, like evolution. So they, as old earth creationists, hold to the, the, the science of physics and geology that, that bears witness to the very ancient age of the earth and the universe, but they do not accept the findings of modern biology and genetics uh, that we think very clearly shows that evolution in terms of common descent of humans with all the other life on earth has happened. The second one you mentioned was the four views on creation, evolution, intelligent design. That one was not one that came about as the result of in-person meetings. We never met in person. And the, the pitch that I made uh, to Zondervan to get this, to get this, uh, this book going was to say, I think I can get the uh, heads of the four major origins organizations to agree to do this. My boss is Deb Harzma from Biologos, and I was pretty sure that I could get her. And Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, whom I said we had become very good friends with them. I was pretty sure he would agree to it. Uh, Steve Meyer, I had worked with. He had written for uh, another big book that I had, uh, that I had edited, uh, The Blackwell Companion to Science and, and Christianity. And so I had known him only through email. We had never met in person, but I thought it was at least worth uh, seeing if he would. He's not the president of the Discovery Institute, but he's sort of the, the intellectual head of the Discovery Institute. So that left Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham. And I told the uh, editors at Zondervan that I was probably not the right one to try to go after Ken Ham and get him to agree to do this just because they don't have a very high view of us at Biologos. But Zondervan themselves reached out, and then I did end up getting put in touch uh, not with Ken Ham himself. He and I never had any direct uh, correspondence, but one of his handlers, one of the people that, that he works with, I emailed back and forth and we went, uh, we, we did it like that. So this one, um, again, because they're the heads of these four organizations, there's a little more skin in the game. And it's not like any of them are going to be convinced that the other person is right or what would happen to their jobs, right? So it was a little, it was a little more difficult and there was a little less trust between the different people that they were all being treated fairly. Um, so it was a little trickier to maneuver some of those things when you had to send the documents back and forth and you'd do an editing pass on them as to what was going to stick and what wasn't going to stick. One of the things I promised from the outset 
with the uh, Answers in Genesis people was that I would not change a comma. I would not correct a typo without telling them this is what I'm proposing, but it's ultimately up to you. So every word that is there are the words that they wanted to be there. Um, but you can tell that uh, there's not uh, a lot of uh, respect from um, them to the other people that were involved in this project. And that makes it difficult. And it makes it sad, too. I mean, we're all Christians. We all hold to what I think are the fundamentals of the, the Christian faith. But um, it makes it a little trickier when you have presidents of organizations all involved in doing it like that. Ken, along those lines, Ken Ham actually talked about this online. He talked about being invited to a lunch or to meet with the people at BioLogos, and he ended up comparing you all to Sandballot um, and himself to Nehemiah building yep. something, and you were just a distraction to stop God's work. I, I thought that was just alarming yeah. coming from a brother in Christ. But one of the things that, that we do appreciate is the, the modeling that Deb Harzma and Hugh Ross have put forth in sitting together on a stage and being able to interact, even though there's differences. And I, I think if you're an outsider just looking in, um, uh, that seems to be much more Christ-like and much, much more in the spirit of, um, you know, the Christian family than it is to, to compare you to some pagan enemy of Israel, um, not having <laughs> enough time to have, have a lunch with you. But along those lines, Christine brought up that you've done a couple of these books now, uh, of these four views or five views. I want to ask you, um, I, I, I prefer that kind of dialogue uh, as opposed to just a, a book expressing one view. I find I learn more, and I think it's more in line, you know, with what the Bible says that, um, that, that a fool takes a choice before hearing both sides of the story and, and hearing a cross-examination. So my question to you is when you're putting these books together, you personally, do, do you learn more from the person just prevent, pre presenting their opening statement, or do you learn more from the interaction in the cross-examinations? or the critiques? So I certainly benefit from um, being able to have these views defended by people who hold them rather than just, here's what somebody says that other group believes and here's why they're wrong. You know, it's, it's, I, I find it much more engaging to hear from the source itself and to, to say, put forth your best argument. What are the reasons why you hold to this? And then for, for this four views on creation evolution one, I specifically asked every contributor to say, and here is the part of my position that is perhaps most susceptible to critique from other views, to, to show that they would have some acknowledgement that their view does have problems for at least some people, right? So that all of these views have strengths and weaknesses depending on where you're coming from. And I just asked, would you acknowledge that? And uh, part of this was because, you know, I was a logic professor for a long time and I'd make undergraduate students when they were writing uh, papers say, okay, you have to defend a position, but one of the things I want you to do is to say, what's the best argument against that position and acknowledge that and have something to say about it. So I was trying to get these uh, to do the same thing. And you'd 
do see some hints of that in several of the chapters where they acknowledge, yep, this is this is difficult, but here's the response that I have. And ultimately, I think the difficulties that my position has are not as hard as the difficulties that that other position has. But at least I'm acknowledging that there are some, some differences. One other thing I'd say about these multi-views books. So the very first book I ever did was also with uh, my friend Chad Meister. We co- we co-authored a big survey of, of the history of Christian thought. It's just called Christian Thought, a Historical Introduction. And doing that book, um, I think, gave me the perspective of the, the Christian tradition is much broader and has a lot more diversity in it than the very narrow slice that I was brought up in and that I kind of resonate with. And it gave me the perspective of saying there are other people outside of my own little perspective that have insightful and valid things to say, and they're worth listening to. And I think, too, it gives us, again, a little bit of that degree of humility of maybe maybe I'm not right about everything. Maybe I need to at least hold some of these things a little more loosely and that I can learn from other people. So that's why I like these views, is to these multi-views books, is that you get to uh, see a lot of that diversity of, of the Christian tradition. Okay, you brought up the good side of that diversity of the Christian tradition, but um, I mentioned earlier that skeptics also look at that as a drawback or as a negative, or as maybe even a tell that Christianity can't be true. So I'm going to ask you the difficult question now. Uh, as Christians, um, we believe, or I'll, I'll ask it as a skeptic to you, you believe that um, you have the leading of the Holy Spirit, you have the mind of Christ and you have the authority of the Word of God or the Bible leading you. If that's the case, why are there so many divergent views? Why are there so many disagreements? And why do some of these disagreements, not lately, but in the past, end in death and wars and maybe professors getting fired from their jobs? <laughs> Fair question. And... Um... I guess I'd try to flip that a little bit and say, isn't it remarkable that there have been so many views proliferate and that we haven't killed off all of the people who, who disagreed? Um, I think it at least points to the fact that there's a difference between accepting that there is a truth versus my own perspective on the truth is infallible or even inerrant, right? So I have to make the distinction between saying God is the source of all truth. God communicates to us through scripture and through the wooing of the Holy Spirit, but those are not definitive clobber you over the head kinds of communications where it's this is what you all must believe. Instead, we're part of a community who understands things in certain ways. Different communities understand those things slightly differently. So there is a kind of diversity that's there. I uh, this, this reminded me, so there's a pretty influential book back 10 years ago or so by a sociologist named Christian Smith called The Bible Made Impossible. He himself had been a Protestant and ended up converting to Catholicism. And one of his gripes against Protestantism was these multi-views. And he even specifically mentioned these multi-views books where, come on, 
Catholicism doesn't have this problem because you just have the Pope or the magisterium at some sense say, this is the right answer and we all get in line and that solves all the problems. Well, that might solve some problems, but it certainly doesn't solve all the problems. And I am a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a person who thinks that denominationalism is not all bad, that what these different perspectives do is to give us insights in different ways into this mysterious, profound truth that there is this God who loves me and a trinity that has existed for all time and Jesus Christ who became human and died in some mysterious way for me, right? Reflecting on that can take a lot of different insights in different directions. And so, no, I don't think we should kill each other over our differences. And I even wish we wouldn't fire each other, each other over our differences. But there is some value to preserving differences and to let those come together in ways that help to illuminate things better than any one of them can on their own. So each of these different streams, I think it was Richard, Fro Richard Foster who wrote a book called Streams of Living Water that, that looked at major ways of understanding spirituality, at least. And the argument is that we're better off by being acquainted with all of these because they're all bringing some unique perspective on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So anytime I, as a human, try to draw up a series of doctrines and put these boxes so that this divine can fit into them, I'm going to be missing something. I'm going to be excluding something. And different perspectives draw up those lines in different ways so that some of those unique insights can be brought out in other ways. So that's my defense of multi-views as a whole that are worthwhile. Now, please don't hear that as somehow degenerating into just some kind of rank relativism that there is no truth of the matter. I still think my view is the right one, right? Or I wouldn't hold it. I wouldn't defend it. I wouldn't work for an organization like this. I think my view is the right one. But on lots of questions reg regarding uh, Christian theology, I think there's a lot of value in hearing from different perspectives that gives us a bigger, more holistic picture, things, blind spots that I have, that my tradition has, that they can help to illuminate. So along with that, I mean, you, you wrote a book, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution. Mm. Um, you've changed <laughs> your view, right? How has your view changed and what, what, what drove that change? How, what did that look like? So the title of that book was one that was chosen by the, uh, by the publisher. And we thought it was a little bit aggressive in that not everybody who contributed, there are like 30 people in it that, that told their stories and not all of them are stories of dramatic changes. Some of them are. My own personal story in that is, again, I was a math and science um, major as an undergrad. My father was a science teacher and I had never grown up in, uh, in a family or even in a church that said, this is what you must believe about things. Instead, we were always encouraged to uh, ask questions and to explore. So I didn't, I didn't have some big crisis, like I was a diehard young earth creationist and, and became evol an evolutionary creationist. But I always was nervous about how to make the views on science 
fit with my theology in a way that I believed upheld the authority of Scripture. And so that was a bit of a journey for me of coming to understand some of what we were talking about there of the ancient Near Eastern context, and that there are a lot of different ways that people have understood these stories over the centuries. And so there's not just this one, you must accept this one interpretation or you're not a real Christian. So my own journey was much more of how to take these two things that were fairly separate in my mind and to try to form one more coherent view of all of that. And for me, I mean, I had hesitated investigating evolution more seriously because I was nervous about that. And it was only after I became convinced that scripture itself is not anti-evolutionary. It's not talking about the science of human beings that I felt a kind of permission to say, okay, I'm going to explore this a little bit. And for me, it was uh, coming to understand the genetic uh, data of, you know, since, um, you know, just the last couple of decades and the work of Francis Collins, again, on the human genome and understanding how our genetic code is so unmistakably related to the, the DNA of lots of other organisms here. Seeing that data was what made me go, okay, I don't think we can deny this. Um, so what advice would you give to youth leaders, parents, and students for when it comes about talking about science and Christianity? I uh, read a study, I think it was done out of the Fuller Youth Institute at Fuller, Fuller Seminary, of people who grew up in the church, young people who grew up in the church and later left the faith, of what were some of the factors that led to that. And the most striking uh, factor that was correlated was people who grew up in the church and later left said, I never felt like I had a place where I could ask the questions that were bothering me. Their communities of faith were such that they weren't allowed to ask those kinds of things. And I'll tell you, even at the college where I taught, I know that there was a professor there who responded to questions like these in class by saying, you shouldn't be asking questions like that. That is the surest way to drive somebody away and say, I don't want any part of this anymore because those questions are just going to boil up in their minds until they finally explode and say, forget it. So the advice that I would give to youth leaders and parents is to create the kind of spaces where people can ask their questions and not be told that they're not a good Christian if they're asking questions like that. You want to be a good Christian, a follower of the way, the truth, and the life? Ask your questions. Encourage that sort of thing. And if we're so scared of where the answers are going to go, maybe we ourselves need to reexamine what we think. So ask the questions. Um, there's certainly some wisdom to say, bring some people in that can give some answers. So the questions just don't go out into a void and you say, who knows, we don't have any good answers for that because we think there are good answers for that. But find people that will come to you, your youth group who are scientists so that they see that scientists aren't these people with horns that are only trying to disprove the Bible, that there are these Christians that have devoted their lives to trying to understand God's world and the way that it works. And at Biologos, that's one of the main things we have done is to show that there are these these people who are out there who are committed Christians and yet are scientists and are trying to understand how all of that works together. So please let 
kids ask questions and encourage them to do that. And the leaders who may not know them the answers themselves say, let me go on this journey with you. Let's find people who might disagree. Let's read a multi-views book and see how different people answer this and try to sort out what are the best ways. That gives young people the understanding that there are options there, that we're not foreclosed to say you must hold to just this and only this. So I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would give is to create safe spaces where people can ask questions. What well-known person does the most good for the world, in your opinion? The most good. That's, uh, I'd love to ask how we're measuring such thing. Um, I uh, I suppose working for Biologos, I'm kind of contractually bound to say someone like Francis Collins has done the most good in the world. He's certainly uh, here recently. I guess that's validated by his uh, being granted the Templeton Prize for this year. So it puts him in the same company as Mother Teresa and Desmond Tutu and Billy Graham. So uh, at least the kind of good that uh, we get talking about here today with regard to science and religion, he's certainly done an awful lot of good. So good answer. <laughs> so Francis, I, um, I Francis got Jim. I read your your previous book, which is it was it the Four Views of Origins and Creation and Intelligent Design? Was that so? Uh, when I read that book, uh, I was still kind of old Earth creationist RTB guy. And so I, I'm going to admit this as a confession. I, I read um, Deborah Harzma's chapter just like I was flipping through, you know, a magazine I'm not interested in. I was like, okay, there's three Christian <laughs> views here, and then there's this, you know, nutty view, right? The evolutionist. And when I first read the book, that's where I was, and I didn't even consider it. I didn't even. I just I read it. I read it, but I didn't even consider it as serious because I, I was still kind of only one foot out of Plato's cave. Uh, but the book, I, I think that this kind of a book, the way you set that up, and I think that one was a little different. I think you had the critiques after each point of view. It was a little bit different. So we'd like to ask you about that too. But I, I think these books are so powerful in, in the way that they give you an opportunity to see that, no, the Christian worldview is a continuum. It's not just a one-size-fits-all, and there are other relevant opinions uh, at the family table. And so I think that's the, the very positive thing about something like this. I do also think there's a negative that I think skeptics bring up to say that Christianity isn't true because we can't figure anything out, and there's so many divergent views. 